presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today is our second in our series on Saved by Grace. What does it mean? And today we're talking about a lot of people's favorite subject. We're going to be talking about election and foreknowledge and predestination. Woo! Those are three heavy ones right there. And I assure you that by the time we get through, you probably will have uh, more, more questions than you have answers, which is, uh, which is fine. But uh, anyway, we, for our theme verse for the series, uh, I've chosen the passage Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which I put in your notes. If you don't have some notes, there's some there on the back table. And so we'll just uh, begin by reading this, and this is from the New International Version. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is an important word in the Greek language. It's the word uh, poema, P-O-E-I-M-A, poema, and it means, uh, it means masterpiece. We're God's masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And last week when we did our introduction, we basically we looked at uh, two or three things. First of all, we saw that in just getting an overview that salvation is uh, God's gracious gift to an undeserving and really an ill-deserving people because the reason that salvation is by grace is why? We don't deserve it. That's exactly right because by nature, what is the nature of man? And when I say man, I'm using the term generically, man and women, uh, humans. What is the nature of humans today? Yeah, that we are sinners. And so if God gave us what we deserve, what would that be? Yeah, we would be, uh, as sinners, if God gave us what we deserve, then what we would be is condemned. And in, in fact, the Bible states, Jesus himself stated, that, uh, that the world was already under condemnation, and the reason for that is because all of us are sinners. We're born sinners. We're sinners by choice. We are sinners by nature and the reason that God's salvation is gracious is because in order to save anybody God cannot give us what we deserve God has to do something else and that's what we're going to be talking about over these next few weeks one of the fascinating things as you read particularly the New Testament is that you discover when God uh, in looking at God's plan of salvation you discover that God the Father is the one who planned it from all eternity. And in fact, uh, that's, that's where we're going to be starting today in looking at the whole subject of election and foreknowledge and predestination. Then we're going to see that uh, in a couple of three weeks that it was the Son who came and purchased our salvation. In other words, if what we deserve as sinners is to be condemned, uh, Hazel said to go to hell, and that's right, 
if that's what we deserve, then if God is just and righteous and holy and fair, God can't just say because of his nature, well, I'm going to let you character slide this time because the moment God did that, what would happen to his nature? Yeah, he, that's right. He wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be God. There's some outlines in the back if y'all want to grab some. So we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about the fact that it's the, uh, it's the Lord Jesus who came and died for sins, and we're going to talk about all the implications of that. And then finally, what we see when we talk about God's plan of salvation is not only that the Father planned it from all eternity, not only did the Son in time and space come and give his life as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of God's people, but also we're going to see that it's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, who is the one who actively applies the work of God to our life. In fact, next week we're going to be talking about calling. Uh, not talking about calling on the telephone. We're talking about calling when God calls us to himself. And we're going to distinguish between two kinds of callings in the Bible. One is a calling by the gospel where you and I are commanded to go out everywhere and preach the gospel to everybody and all will who will believe can be saved. But there's a second kind of calling, and that's what we call the effectual calling, in which God, by his Spirit, changes us inside and makes us receptive to his gospel. So we see all three of the persons of the Godhead involved in, the, uh, in, in God's salvation. Uh, one of the paradoxes that we saw, and again, this is by way of review, one of the paradoxes of salvation is that man is responsible. Mankind's responsible. The Bible calls upon us to repent of our sins. The Bible calls upon us to believe the truth of the gospel. And, of course, the word believe is a verb. And uh, what, is the <clears throat> what is the noun form of this verb right here, believe? Faith, that's right. The noun form is faith. God calls upon us to have faith. But, as we just read in our text here, in our verse that sort of uh, underlies the whole theme, what we're talking about, what did we discover about faith? Ephesians 2.8. What does it say? It's that you're saved through faith and what? And that's not of yourselves, it's what? It's the gift of God. Even the faith that we are to express is God's gift. <clears throat> it's a gift, of, and unless God gives us this, we cannot express this. So that's how we come around to talking about these, what for a lot of people is a very difficult subject when we're talking about some of these things that happens from all of eternity, God's choice, God's uh, foreknowledge, God's predestination. God not only, the paradox is that God calls upon us to believe the gospel, God calls upon us to repent. And the other side of that is that God is sovereign and that God knows from all eternity exactly what he's going to do and he's chosen out a people for himself that he will save. And that's what we want to investigate today. And of course, the natural reaction to that, and we addressed this a little bit last week, the initial reaction to that kind of uh, understanding is that, well, that seems grossly unfair. If God chose out this person, these people to save, but God didn't choose these people to save, that seems very unfair. And you know the answer to that? It is unfair. 
Because when God condemns people, condemns sinners to hell, what are they getting? What's fair? They're getting fairness. But when God chooses out from among all the people of the earth, all those who would ever be born, people for himself, upon whom he is going to show his grace and his mercy, they're not receiving fairness. They're receiving grace. They are receiving mercy. So we're talking about two entirely different things. Now, let's explore that a little bit. Three important words that we want to try to discuss, and again, we're not going to be able to talk about everything that we'd all like to talk about, but at least it'll stir up our thinking. We want to uh, talk about election, foreknowledge, and predestination, and in order to do that, I want us to look at our, our working passage, which is in, in that little box there at the top of your notes. The second verse, the first, uh, the first passage is our little springboard that we're going to use for the entire series. The second passage is one that's going to apply today, and it'll also apply next week when we talk about calling. Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word firstborn is an important word, and I just want to mention this. When you, when you see this word firstborn, what immediately comes to mind? If you had to define it, what would you say? Yeah, the oldest child, the first one down the birth canal, or whatever, the firstborn. That's not what it means either in the Old or the New Testament. It can have that meaning, but the primary meaning of the word firstborn is the word preeminent. Solomon, in the Old Testament, is called the firstborn son of David. But was Solomon the very first son that David had? And the answer to that is no. David had a number of sons before Solomon ever came along because Solomon was the result of a liaison between David and whom? Bathsheba. So the word firstborn means the preeminent one. And so the point that he's making here is those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to, become, to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn, the preeminent one, that Jesus might be the preeminent one. The reason that God did this was so that Jesus would receive all of the preeminence. He would be the preeminent one among his brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what we're seeing already is basically there are five chains that we see here. The first chain is God's foreknowledge. The second chain is God's predestining. The third is God's calling. The next is God's justifying. And finally is God's glorifying. This is an unbreakable chain of God. God says, this is what I'm going to do for my people. He he foreknows his people and uh, predestined them, and this all happens in terms of eternity. 
and then calling occurs, that's when God calls us by the gospel and we respond in faith to that call and God justifies us. That happens in terms of time and space. If you know Christ, you could give a testimony as to when that happened to you probably. And then finally, there's glorification. And again, that takes place in eternity because that's when God makes us ultimately like himself, when we are just exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ. So God says, so, so what we see is that salvation is a work of God from the beginning all the way through the end. And Paul just mentions these five links, as it were, in the chain. Now, as we go through our study, we're going to add a few little things here. We're going to talk about where regeneration fits in and where faith and repentance fit in and all those kinds of things. But here's what Paul is talking about right here. So the first thing we want to do is talk about uh, this whole term of election because election really fits in to this category right here. The word elect means to choose, means to select. It's just like when we hold an election here in, this, uh, in our state or in our country or wherever, what are we doing? This November, we're going to have, well, in Georgia, you're going to have a primary coming up, a primary election. What is it that you're going to be doing? You're going to be choosing. You're going to be choosing a main candidate from the two major parties, and perhaps there'll be some other candidates. But you're making choices. Now, God makes choices. But what is the basis of God's choice? And that's one of the things that we want to talk about. Notice in your notes, I've got Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Uh, there is a, <clears throat> an, an illustration of God's choosing. It says, The Lord did not his set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. Now, it's talking about God's choice of Israel here. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he might bring you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When it talks here about God's choice of Israel, rather than God choosing the Hittite nation or God choosing the Assyrian nation, God chose the Israelites. Why did God choose them? Was it because they were so spectacular? Was it because they had tremendous potential? What does it say? Hmm? Yeah, because he loved them. The basis of God's choice, as far as Israel was concerned, is his love. That's an important thing to remember. Now, we have to ask ourselves at this point, well, now, why would God love them? Was there something really special about these folks? Were the Israelites a lot easier to love than other people? What is our human condition? No, we're, all, we're all sinners. We're all the same under, under the skin. Notice also that the same, and we're going to talk about this, uh, notice also the same is true of God's choosing of individuals. Uh, and the whole idea of election, eclectos, means to choose freely without any sort of outside compulsion. There was nothing that made God choose Israel. There was nothing that made God choose anybody who belongs to him. Notice it says in Matt, from uh, Matthew 11, verse 27, and Jesus is speaking here. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. What does that verse say, especially that last phrase? How is it that we come to know God? Through Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, He reveals Himself. In other words, you can't come to know God unless God first reveals Himself in a way. Notice also in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 where Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Notice that word beloved in there. It's always present. Sometimes simply inferred, but it's present when we're talking about God's people. Why? Because God has chosen you from where? From the beginning. For what? For salvation. Now, how does God accomplish that? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You see, what Paul is talking about here is that salvation is the end. That's where God is taking all of his people. He's going to bring them to himself. Now, God uses here, he, uh, Paul uses here the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Word of God. That's belief in the truth. And what is that? That's a means to an end. What we are beginning to discover is that God not only ordains the end, but God does what? He ordains the means to the end. How is it? that God eventually, in time and space, will bring us to faith. He brings us to faith through the calling of the Spirit of God, that's what we'll talk about next week, and through belief in the Word, through belief in what the Scriptures affirm about the, uh, about the, truth, about the truth of God. Several other verses that we might look at, I'd, I'd like for us to look uh, at uh, this passage in Romans 9, beginning at verse 6, because it says, uh, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. What, what Paul is talking about here is at the end, what is Romans chapter 8 all about? Anybody remember? What is, what is the general tenor of Romans 8? Yeah, now that comes in 9. But you're, No, no, you're close, you're close. But just before that in Romans 8. Yeah, everything happens for a purpose. Uh, that's in Romans 8, 28. That's right. The whole tenor of Romans chapter 8 is about our security that we have in God, that we can have security in Christ, and that there are a number of reasons that we can't. And Paul gets to the end of that in Romans chapter 8, and he says nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then immediately in Romans 9, he starts looking at the nation of Israel. And it's like he's, he's presenting a question to say, but, but what about Israel? Weren't they God's chosen people? And look what's happened to them. How do you explain that? Paul explains it beginning in verse 6 of Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So it looks like, whoa, well, this, this stuff didn't work out, did it, for Israel? No, that's not the case. That's right. Notice what he says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now what does he mean when he says that? Well, we're going to see here in a minute. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But 
Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, what is Paul talking about when he says that? What's he talking about? He's talking about Abraham. And he said that Abraham, his descendants would be called after Isaac. In other words, that was the covenant line. But was this the only child that Abraham ever had? Who's another one? Yeah, Ishmael. Which was born first? Ishmael was born first. You say, whoa, now it looks like Ishmael ought to be the one then. But see, Ishmael was rejected and Isaac is through the one, the line through which he came, through which the covenant promise came. Through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh. How was it that Ishmael came into being? Was Abraham, was, uh, Abraham was his father, but who's, who was Ishmael's mother? Yeah, Hagar. Not Hagar the horrible, but Hagar the handmaid. And, uh, but who was Isaac's mother? Sarah. That's right. Sarah's Isaac's mother. It is not the children of the flesh, Ishmael, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I'll come and Sarah shall have a son. He said, well, maybe that's not good enough. So he tells us some more. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. Now, who's Rebekah? Wife of? Yeah, okay. So Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. There was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the, incidentally, who were those twins? Esau and Jacob. Who's the older? Yeah, okay. Esau's the older. Jacob is the younger. Conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad. Whoa. So if God's going to choose, is God going to choose on the basis of whether somebody's done something good or bad? No. Paul says no. That was not even a consideration. Why did God choose the way he did? In order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older, who's the older? Esau will serve the younger, Jacob, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Once uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher uh, in the last century, preaching at Metropolitan uh, in London Metropolitan Church preached on this very text and a woman came up to him after the service and was all agitated and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm really disconcerted by the things that you had to say. It bothers me that, that God said he hated Esau. And Mr. Spurgeon's response was a very wise one. He said, you know, he said, it never bothered me that God said he hated Esau. What I couldn't understand is how could God love Jacob? Because see, there was nothing lovable in either one of them. But God chose on the basis of his sovereign right to choose simply because it pleased him to do so based on his love, based on his purposes, this passage tells us right here. And the whole point is that God's electing purposes will never be thwarted. God simply does what he intends to do. For example, and let, maybe this will help 
clarify just a little bit because I, I don't want us to get lost in the shuffle here. Uh, what is, uh, are, are you familiar with the prism? What, is a, what does a prism do? Yeah, it'll refract light. Okay, so you've got this, um, you've got this prism and uh, you shine white light, you shine a flashlight into this prism. What comes out the other side? Yeah, you get a spectrum of, there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. There are seven primary colors that go anywhere from, uh, I believe it starts with red and goes all the way down to violet. It goes through the blue. Okay, now, if you apply this illustration, you say, well, how is it that God is going to demonstrate his glory? Well, the Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. So when the time comes that God judges sin, God can demonstrate, God can demonstrate his righteousness. He can demonstrate his holiness. Uh, he can demonstrate his justice. And all of those are demonstrated as we, as we see God dealing, giving to sinners exactly what they deserve. That's what they deserve. God deals with them righteously. They deserve the pit. God is dealing in holiness because that's what he is. The problem is, how is God going to reflect other characteristics like grace and mercy and love? and goodness. How does God reflect all of that? How is God going to demonstrate that? Because God can't just close his eyes at sin, can he? And refuse to deal with sin and say, well, you know, uh, I think I'll let old Sarah just kind of slide in here and because uh, I want to be nice to Sarah. Because the moment God does that and doesn't deal with the sin in her life or my life or your life, then what happens to these characteristics of God? He's no longer righteous. He's no longer seen to be holy, certainly not seen to be just. So what does God do? God is going to demonstrate his mercy, his grace, his love, his goodness, and we could just go on ad infinitum, I suppose. But how does God do that? He does that through his electing purposes, by choosing a people for themselves and making provision for their sin in time and space through the substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ, God not only shows himself to be just, and that's what the uh, early chapters of the book of Romans talks about, but God also shows himself uh, to be all of these other things as well. Now, how does God go about doing all of that? How is it, what does it mean to say that God foreknows? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What is foreknowledge? When you hear the word foreknowledge, what kind of definition comes to your mind immediately? What, is, what does it sound like it means? Foreknowledge. What is that? To know ahead of time. Just simply to know before time, beforehand to know ahead of time. Um, can you think of illustrations where we kind of have a little bit of foreknowledge from time to time? Yeah, okay, an ultrasound with a baby. Uh, they rub the jelly on your belly, and I don't know how that stuff works. Well, yeah, I guess it's the ultrasound. But anyway, you get this picture, and it looks like a baseball diamond. But everybody says, look, there it is. It's a boy. 
And so you, you know what to expect, and then when you go to the hospital some months later, you know, no surprise. I knew this was going to be a little boy. Yeah, that's kind of the way it is. And some people, when they think about the foreknowledge of God, think, well, foreknowledge works kind of this way. That what, what happens is that God somehow looks down the tunnel of time. And God, rec- God looks down the tunnel of time and he sees all these people throughout all eternity who are going to be living. And he recognizes the one who's going to believe in Jesus and the one who doesn't believe in Jesus. And on that basis, he chooses which one will be saved and which one won't be saved. But there's a problem with that. What's the problem with it? Exactly. That's right. We, we make choices, but the, the truth is, is that because of our nature, and what's our nature? We're sinful. The Bible says we are hostile toward God. We don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, we do not seek after God. So if all of that's true, and it is about us because we are sinners, how is it that anybody could ever choose to follow after Christ? And the answer to that is what? They won't unless God first chooses them. And that's what he's talking about right here. He's not talking about God looks down the annals of the tunnel of time and choose and picks on the basis of what God sees is going to happen because where does that put the initiative? It puts the initiative on us. But in, in salvation, the initiative is all of God. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father does what? Unless the Father enables him to do so. And that happens in time and space based on God's uh, electing purposes here. I want to show you a, uh, a little something here. Uh, in your outline under B, foreknowledge, and uh, part three, I want you to look there for a minute. This is the meaning of foreknowledge as it applies to God. And when we're talking about foreknowledge, the, the most important part of that word foreknowledge or to foreknow is the term know, K-N-O-W. What does it mean to know someone? Well, when you and I, you say, uh, say, let's see, do you know Bill Clinton? Do you know Robert Dole? Well, what do you mean? If I see a picture, I can identify these characters. But do we really know them? Have we ever shaken hands with them? introduced ourselves to them, and then even beyond that, how well do we know someone? We can't know anyone unless they allow themselves to be known by us. The word know in the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, has more than just a sense of cognizance or awareness. It means more than that. It also means intimacy. For example, And I put a few verses here for you at the bottom of that uh, page. From Genesis 4.1, it says, Adam knew his wife. And what was the result of his knowing his wife? Yeah. Does that sound like he said, Whoa, I see that head popping up in the bushes. That is not a chipmunk. That's Eve over there. Is that what that meant? No. When he says he knew his wife, it meant that he was intimate with his wife. Uh, you, uh, you only, and the reference here is to Israel, 
you only, God says, have I known of all the families of the earth. Remember, God had been intimate uh, with the nation of Israel. What had he done for them? He'd given them his law. He'd given them his covenants. All of that was true. Was that true of the Hittite nation? Was that true of the Assyrian nation? Was that true of any of the surrounding nations? And the answer to that clearly is no. God was intimate only with that nation. And then notice uh, from Matthew 7, 23, Jesus is telling a story, and the uh, gist of the story is a lot of folks are going to come to Jesus in that day, judgment day, and they're going to say, Whoa, Jesus, we did all kind of stuff. We cast out demons in your name, and we did all kind of mighty works in your name. And the punchline is what I've got right here. Jesus says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, now, when it says, I never knew you, does that mean here's something that Jesus doesn't know about? Here's something that God doesn't know about? That God is not cognizant of these people? That this kind of slipped by him somewhere? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means God is not intimate with these people. Didn't know them in the sense of loving them the way he loved Jacob, the way God loves all of his people. The term is used five times in the New Testament as it applies to God. And we'll just look at a couple of those. Uh, the one from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered, and then there's a lot of names there, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then he gives us the means by the sanctifying work of the Spirit in order that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Notice uh, Peter says later in verse 24, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Every time in the New Testament that the Bible uses the term foreknow or one of its cognates, it always is related to God's salvation. Whether it may be talking about Jesus and Jesus paying the price for the salvation, or it's talking about God's people being called, being chosen and called to himself. So the bottom line is foreknowledge simply means that God has set his heart on individuals with a view toward salvation. Uh, I, I put a couple of alternate translations in here for you. I really like the one from the Williams Version, Romans 8, 29. For those on whom he set his heart beforehand, he also did predestinate to become conformed to the image of his Son. What does that tell us? That tells us from all eternity, God loved not because of any merit he saw in us, but because it pleased him to do so, because the character of God, part of the, what it means to be God is that there's a pure love. Out of that love and on the basis of his purposes, which we don't always fully understand, but never on the basis of our own merit, God chose us to be his own and then committed himself that in time he would bring us, he would call us to himself, that we would be justified, and eventually God will bring us to be with him. Now, that's a marvelous truth for us to grasp because what that... Remember the story that Jesus told about the, uh, about the guy who had the, the hundred sheep? 
and one of them kind of strayed off, and if you or I had been that person, we'd have said, hmm, a 1% loss is not bad in business. Let's just write this off, cut our losses, take these down to the, to the shearer or wherever we're taking them, and we're done, we got our money, we're out of here. But in that story, it says that the shepherd left those 90 and 9, and what did he do? He went out and found that one sheep. See, that's what this is talking about, that when God starts off, when God chooses a hundred sheep, guess how many wind up over here in the pen when it's over? A hundred. Because God guarantees that because he's committed himself to his people to accomplish what he had said that he will do. Now, whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Ooh, there's that awful word. Man, it sounds like fatalism. You know, you fall off the ladder and you get down on the ground, you get up and you limp, you say, whew, I'm glad that's over. And that kind of attitude, that that's not what the Bible's talking about in predestination. Predestination relates to the purposes of God in salvation. It's a com it comes from a compound word that simply means to determine or to appoint beforehand. Uh, again, in the New Testament, the term is used over and over in reference to salvation and eternal life. Let's look at a uh, one, well, we'll look at one illustration from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 there in your notes. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who's the us? The believers, that's right, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, the Father, chose us, believers, in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. When did God make His choice that He did? Before He ever put the first star into space. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. To what end? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. God doesn't choose us so we can go around and say, <laughs> I'm one of the elect. Too bad you're going to hell. That is not, that is not biblical. It's not New Testament. In fact, it's just an awful kind of thing. None of us have this list. Say, I know a couple of people who think they have the list, but we don't have the list. What we, and that's the reason the Great Commission tells us to preach the gospel where? Everywhere and to everybody. And as we do that, God calls his own to himself. Spurgeon once said, if the Bible said that all of God's elect had yellow stripes running up and down their back, he said, I would go down the street and pull out shirt tails looking for them. But the Bible doesn't say that. And neither should we. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, notice, in love, He predestined us to what? To adoption as sons. One of the, one of the things we're going to be talking about in a few weeks is adoption. That simply means to receive responsibilities and privileges of mature people. That's, that's what that's talking about. That's a simplification, but that's basically it. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Also we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Again, when we talk about predestination, we're not talking about fatalism. What will be, will be. No, we're not, this is not que sera, sera. We're talking about in the eternal decrees of God, when God decides he's going to do something, guess how well it works? It always works 100% of the time. James Boyce, and I put a quotation from him in your notes, predestination means that God has determined the specific destiny of those he has previously decided should be saved and made like Jesus. Now, I put in your notes some common objections, and I will take a moment just to look at those. I wish we had a little more time, but we just, we've only got about five minutes left. One of the common objections to the doctrine, to, in fact, all these doctrines, election, foreknowledge, predestination, is it makes God seem very tyrannical. It makes salvation seem very arbitrary. But the fact is, is that what is it that we all deserve as sinners? We don't deserve the favor of God. We deserve just the opposite. So when God gives what sin deserves, that's judgment, condemnation, then people are getting what they deserve. But when God chooses on the basis of what's pleasing to him, not on the basis of any merit in us, and chooses to show mercy, then God is not being arbitrary or tyrannical. God is simply demonstrating his character. Um, secondly, some people say, well, if predestination's true, then, then uh, human free moral agency has to be denied. But remember, as sinners, what is our spiritual condition? Are we free to choose any kind of spiritual stuff we want to choose? No. The Bible says we are enslaved to sin. We are slaves of sin. And it's fact, in fact, it's the predestining work of God and that outworking and calling us and justifying us that really does what? It takes us out of our slavery to sin and brings us into freedom as the children of God. That's what the whole book of Galatians is all about. And furthermore, some people say, well, if predestination and all this stuff is true and the elect are going to be saved and nobody else is going to get saved, well, shoot, there's just no reason for evangelism. Why, why do evangelism? God's going to save who he's going to save. But again, remember, God not only ordains the end, salvation, he ordains the means to the end. And God's means for bringing people to himself is what? Preaching of the gospel. I had somebody tell me not long ago, said, well, look, Bradshaw, if I believe this stuff that you do, I just give up because, uh, you know, there's just no reason to even do any sort of evangelism. What's your purpose in evangelism? I said, well, the one that I can really think of is obedience to Christ because I said, what's Jesus' marching orders? Go and proclaim the gospel to every creature. See, I'm not responsible for what people do, nor are you responsible for what people do with the gospel. We're just responsible to be God's agents for delivering the truth of the gospel. What happens in the lives of those individuals is between them and God. We don't have any part of it. And furthermore, we were talking about this in a study this morning. If, it, if somebody's salvation depended on my ability to be able to answer their questions and my ability to live in such a way that I never caused them to trip, it would make me fearful 
fearful indeed because I would say, gee whiz, I don't want to say anything to anybody because I might cause somebody to go to hell. But the truth, so see, it would have just the opposite effect. The truth is, is that God has ordained a people for himself and therefore you and I can go out boldly and proclaim the gospel and say, if you will trust Christ, if you will come to him, God will save you because that's true. But who is it that God's going to save? He's going to save the ones upon whom he set his love and he's going to bring them to himself. Salvation has to begin with God because of our spiritual condition. And God's salvation begins and ends in eternity. Do we have some responsibility? Sure, we have the responsibility to believe. We have the responsibility to repent. But even those things, as we'll see in the weeks to come, are gifts that God gives us because from all eternity He's chosen us to be His own. What's the right response to this doctrine? Que sera, sera? No. The right response is one of praise and thanksgiving for God who works all things well because His plan, His salvation is so magnificent and is so full-orbed and there aren't any holes in it anywhere that we should kneel before God amazed and say how wondrous you are that you alone can do this and thank you for the mercy that you've extended to me. May that be the cry of our heart this week. Next week we're going to talk about God's calling and what that means. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy. Thank you for the glory and the grace that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, For other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.